My guest this week, I think it's someone who you know, known for his incredible sense of style, wonderful design, and of course, as the judge of the eternally popular Great British Sewing Bee. It's Patrick Grant. And I have to say, I found this conversation fascinating. This is an interview that is deep set in such amazing values such as craftsmanship, craftswomanship, preserving legacy of ancient skills, textile industry, reviving it, rejuvenating it, helping create jobs, helping save the planet, re-educating us all that we should not be buying from brands that create, no joke, and you need to listen to this podcast to hear about this, 3,000 new products a day. Um, It is just one of those podcasts that is going to get you thinking about your dreams, thinking about the companies that you work for, thinking about the brands that you're building. He's a kindred spirit and we had so much to talk about, especially when it came to the fact that businesses can create positive change. They're so powerful. They're not just for shareholders, they're for society, they're for community. They are more powerful than government. And we've just got to figure out how we make sure that we support those that are protecting our future in the broadest sense. From Savile Row to Sewing Bee, Patrick is going to be someone that you're absolutely going to love. So get in a cosy corner and soak it all up. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown Hi, I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. I founded my first business, Not on the High Street, at 28, with a newborn strapped to my chest. Nearly 20 years on, he's all grown up and I'm running my second business, Holly & Co., I've learned so much about taking risks, running a business and some extraordinary life lessons along the way. And I know others have too. Yet despite the wealth of experience we have between us, lessons like this are often left unheard and it can feel like we're travelling our paths alone. So I've reached out to founders and those who simply inspire me to share their hard-earned wisdom with you. My hope is that collectively, these remarkable realisations will help you on your own journey. I like to think of it as inspiration for life. If you enjoyed this episode, might I ask you to share it with a friend and to like, subscribe and review it so that together we can ignite people's passion across the UK. Now, let's begin this week's Conversation of Inspiration. Hi, Patrick. It is a huge pleasure to be speaking to you today. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here, here being my own kitchen. Yeah, yeah, your your own kitchen (laughs) with what looks like a beautifully crafted wreath behind you. Oh, give a load of respect to the wreath maker in this house. (laughs) She has done a sterling job once again. You know, only 10 oranges were harmed in the making of this wreath. (laughs) 
and several pine cones. So we've, it's Christmassy. Things are heating up. Your girlfriend's 40th though is coming up. We've just established yeah. that that's much more important than actually Christmas at this point in 2023. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But today it's all about you, esteemed fashion designer, brilliant founder and entrepreneur. And of course, the charming judge of BBC's beloved The British Sewing Bee. And it's true. I can't wait to talk to you because I think we do have a lot of shared passions in life about craftsmanship, creativity, and also what I would love to get into at some point in the conversation is the opportunity to do good in the world through business. And yes. that's something, again, I'm very passionate about. But let's start with the little Patrick. You grew up in rural Edinburgh. Well, urban Edinburgh, but it was kind of, it felt a bit, it felt a bit rural. Oh, I, I, I had you, it was a rural part of Edinburgh. And now reading that, I'm thinking to myself, why did I write that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not, is there many rural parts of Edinburgh? Well, it's a very green city. There's, yes. lots, of, there's lots of space. I mean, I grew up next to a, a great big wooded valley and, and the end of our road was another hill and it, i mean they're now nature reserves and at the top of the oh, road is braid hills i mean we were so we were lucky actually we had views of hills and i could see the pentlands from my bedroom window so okay it felt semi-rural semi-rural although you know we had about seven buses at the end of the street <laughs> that took us into the center of edinburgh in about 15 minutes so yeah, yeah. well we'll settle in between then yeah. but your mum susan she worked at the university and your dad james he managed nightclub bands before oh, gosh, that was a long becoming time ago, an yeah. accountant he did yeah, yeah. I, and my dad yeah. was an accountant and he he had sort of like that little bit of past and I always we always have to say that little bit of past to make it cool that he was an accountant for 40 years I, I think big up the accountants <laughs> let them have their moment in the sun <laughs> we can't live without them we can't and we can't do sometimes what they do well, exactly. Also, nor would we really want to. No, um, no. Someone's yeah. got to do it, right? And so yeah. God love accountants. And those, yeah, they love those numbers. They do. And your little sister, Victoria, you were just describing where you grew up. Was it generally a happy childhood for you? Well, it, yeah. No, I mean, I went to the local primary school for the, for the first four years. I went to nursery before that. We We lived next to this phenomenal spot called the Hermitage, which is now a nature reserve, but at the time was just a great big wooded valley, the river running through it and great big, you know, steep sided wooded valley. So yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with a lot of outdoor stuff, a lot of sport, a lot of building dens and all of that good stuff. And, and, and Edinburgh's a beautiful city, a very, I think a very, it's just about the kind of perfect scale. I was reading a book the other week and they were talking about the kind of correct scale for cities and, and the idea and, and the thinking was anything above about half a million gets a little bit overwhelming and, mm. and Edinburgh feels like just, just the right size. You know, the it transport does. networks work brilliantly. You know, there's enough culture, there's enough food, there's enough art, there's enough, you know, there's enough good stuff. And then, you know, we've got beautiful beaches, we've got the mountains just behind, you can go skiing. No, you can't. On a plastic mat at Hill End, oh, okay. Europe's biggest dry <laughs> ski slope, where every child in Edinburgh learned to ski. Um, but we had, you know, it's a great place. It's a great place to grow up, and also beautiful and historic, mm. and you know, the Scottish Enlightenment and so much amazing kind of thinking, moral philosophy, and economics, and all sorts of medicine, all came out of Edinburgh. And um, yeah, I've I've always loved it, and many many of my friends left and then went back, so it still feels very much like home. My mum's still there. My sister moved back to within twenty miles of it, not that long really? ago. Really? 
Oh, it's, well, it just makes me want to just go there straight away right now. Um, I, I was there at Christmas a few years ago and it, there's something completely magical about that time of year and the lights and I, I completely yeah. agree with you. So you're very proud, obviously, to be Scottish and your heritage played a huge role in your life. But going back to young Patrick, so not little, little Patrick, I read that you always had this interest in clothes, even from a very young age. Uh, Where do you think that came from? Because it it seems to have been just basically part of your DNA. Yeah, I don't know. I think it probably, yeah, I think think certain people just really like clothes. I mean, it's part of of self-expression, of course. And the way you feel and present yourself for some people is important. And even for some people who deliberately do it very badly, it's important. Um, And it was just always there. And my dad was always incredibly well dressed, was always really, really sort of precisely put together. The way he dressed was, was with precision. And he always had his ties tied just right. And his shoes were always beautifully polished. And he enjoyed looking good. And I think maybe that was, you know, back to his days as a uh, a band a sort manager, of night, nightclub promoter, oh, and band nightclub manager promoter. And, that was it, yeah. And all of that sort of stuff. But you know, he just liked clothes. I mean, my mum likes clothes, but she wasn't quite so fanatical about it as my dad was. But not that, not that it became, you know, not that it was in any way obsessive. He just he had few but good things. He took care of his clothes. He made sure that they were well, you know, well pressed and and well polished and. That was an important part of how he presented himself. So maybe I learned it from him. I don't know. And and I read that at boarding school, you'd tear pages from Elle and Vogue. And when you were a page boy, uh, you really disliked a suit. So you jumped in a fountain so that you had to yeah, change. Yeah, no, I think, I, I mean, I, my, my mum tells me that wasn't quite true. But I remember not liking this suit. Yeah. Apparently I was thrown in the fountain by a, a, another <laughs> young young guest. Yeah, I, my memory of it is is vague. But I was into fashion. I mean, I guess, I guess in a funny way, many young people are into fashion. And I think that's one of the things that as a 50 plus year old person who's now struggling with the whole idea of it, I think it's uh, it's easy to forget that for many many young people it is an essential part of growing up and yeah. expressing yourself as both a teenager and uh, a young adult. And I was one of those people. I really liked fashion. I mean this was before fashion had become the behemoth and the yes. kind of consumptive wave that it has become in the last 15 20 years. But, you know, back in the days when fashion happened once every six months and, you know, you got a dose of fashion once a month in a fashion magazine and not in between. I would obsessively pour over originally just the women's fashion mags because there were no men's fashion mags back when I was a kid. But, you know, quarterly in Elle and Vogue and a couple of other places, there would be a men's section and I'd pull all those out and kind of recreate outfits. But, you know, I put fashion pictures all over my wall and models and actresses and fashion images, editorial images were what kind of covered the walls of my room at school. And um, so, yeah, I was very into it, but it was always, also, I was never, I liked the beauty of the objects themselves. I liked the workmanship. I liked the materials. You know, I was always, a as a kid, I was always obsessed with how things were made and what things were made from. And in the end, that was what I studied as as an undergraduate was material yes. science and engineering. And I loved the imagery and the beauty of fashion, but I also loved the craftsmanship of, of the products and how they felt. Yeah. How it was made, 
how it was created and put together. I always remember talking to Johnny Bowden here and he said that when he was at boarding school, he would just draw. I mean, it sounds a bit odd, but we did laugh about it. But it was his, you know, he would draw the shoes of all the parents collecting the kids, you know, and he loved the mums coming in and the female fashion because, again, it was in a time where, you know, we weren't just sitting on a phone just watching something every four seconds coming in. It was actually sacred. So this moment, he said, that all the mums and dads came in and he would just look at what they were wearing, draw their shoes, draw what they're... And, and I think, again, you know, what I find fascinating about this podcast is going back to so many times as children, we sort of know... We, we, we know what we need to be doing and then we yeah. sometimes forget it. At boarding school, can I ask, and was it a happy time for you? And were there oh, yeah. subjects that you I were drawn it. to? Was it encouraged your your want of fashion magazines? And Well, I didn't ever consider that I would work in fashion ever. Not, right. not once. I imagined myself going on to do engineering and working in that field. But um and that's what I did for the first 10 years of my professional life. But nothing was discouraged actively. I, it just didn't really crop up in those surveys that you do at school where, you, you know, you, you you tell them that you're doing maths, physics and chemistry G, A level. And it says you will be a doctor or a scientist. Yes. You know, being a fashion designer, I don't think cropped up very heavily on those things. It was either that or fireman teacher it was all fairly basic <laughs> stuff was... i mean there were funnily there, were, there was the, the giles deacon who's a, a a very successful women's wear designer was a couple of years above me at school and he and i were sort of nodding you know we we, we knew that we each had a thing about clothes but was there anyone that I remember Keith um, Brimer Jones here saying that when a teacher recognised his passion for clay, it was like an epiphany. Everything sort of changed. It sort of, but it then happened a decade later. Were you just being channeled into one route, or well, were people you, I seeing I, that you were different in some way? No, I mean, they, I think there was a sense that people recognised that I was different. I mean, even from at nursery school, they, you know, there were reports that said Patrick is the instigator of all classroom disputes. Um, so I was always, I was always a fairly sort of outspoken character, I think. And I always was very confident. And, but no, I mean, I think that's, I was very lucky at school. We got to do almost everything. I went, I went to South Morningside Primary, which is a lovely primary school, still there. And then I went to a school called Edinburgh Academy, which is a, another fantastic school. Uh, and then I went to a place called Barna Castle, which is in County Durham. But all of those schools, we all had the opportunity to do loads of making. We did woodwork, we did metalwork, we did pottery and ceramics, we worked with textiles, we, you know, wow. art, we did all sorts of stuff. I remember building radios and electronics club. We had a chance to just get involved in Amazing. loads of stuff that was not academic. There was loads of academic stuff as well. But I think this is, I think, one of the great problems of the education system Correct. today is that that people who people like Keith, who I know well and have interviewed and discussed exactly this on, on stage with him in the past, people like Keith today would be left behind because mm. you don't have that opportunity to try all of these different things. So I think for many young people, they will leave school. Those who are less ag academic, there is a very significant danger that those people will leave school feeling like there is nothing for them in the world. And I think that is an appalling state of being and an incredible waste of a very large chunk of the kind of human talent in our, in our country. 
I think when I was younger, you know, there were technical colleges, there mm -hmm. were there were apprenticeships all over the place. There was a manufacturing industry that was thriving, an engineering industry that was thriving. There were eight million people employed in manufacturing when I was when I was young. Now that number is less than three. You know, we have a significant number of people with no jobs in this country. We're nearly nearly nine million or around nine million. The number of people who are considered economically inactive, which is this kind of bogus unemployment mm. figure that they that that Margaret Thatcher in, invented when she shut the coal mines. You know, there are nine million people who have no job. And a very significant proportion of those, I suspect, could have found something yes. wonderful to do if the education system gave them the chance. You know, I think shoving everybody down a one size fits all academic educational route is not only a waste of time, it's also a huge waste of money. I mean, the cost of university education is extraordinary now. And a lot of those university degrees will not lead to anything particularly better than you could have done done for yourself if you'd left school at 16 and gone into a, you know an apprenticeship of some sort. So I feel like I went to school in mm. probably, you know, at the perfect time. Perfect time. And I think everybody yeah. since has been progressively yeah. had a less varied and therefore less useful education. Their wings have been clipped more and more, haven't they? And I think you make such a great, great point. And I also think uh, just recently I've employed somebody without a degree and I don't have a degree. And um, my business partner, Sophie, didn't have a degree. And we started not in the high street. And, you know, my son has just gone to uni and that's his choice. But there is such a, as you said, one size fits all, a cookie cutter system that if you now don't fit into it, but the talent out there, the sort of the raw talent that you can nurture and actually I, I feel that it's such a, a privilege to get somebody at that stage with passion and enthusiasm that you can sort of bring into a creative or whatever role actually but just bring in and take a chance on people. Well I think everybody deserves the chance to find the thing that they're good at in life and I think we significantly undermine the economic future of the country by by letting so many people slip through the cracks. Yeah. You know, we've created an industrial base and an economic base here, which doesn't work for a significant part of our population. And that is fundamentally a flaw mm -hmm. in the way we run the country. You know, if if at this moment in time a quarter of all working age people do not have employment. And at the same time, nearly a million jobs remain unfilled. And at the same time, we're bringing, we're having to bring in hundreds of thousands of people from outside of the country to fill vacancies that exist. You know, if we hadn't brought 750,000 migrants into the UK this year, there might well have been almost 2 million unfilled job vacancies. Mm. And the whole thing feels like an abject failure of the long-term policy and planning around work, what we all do with our lives every day. And so many people also are, are unhappy in their jobs because they've been shoved in one direction that doesn't really suit them. I'm going to just take you back for a second. You went to university and you basically, you spent a decade in engineering, didn't you, after that? I did. Before returning yeah. to business school and then seeing an advert for a business for sale. Now, I just love this idea. Was it literally like a little classified advert? Yeah. And it was just basically... It was, it was bananas. Yeah, real twist of fate that just totally changed the direction of your life. Because Completely there you are now. 
you know, you are in engineering, you studied engineering and material science. And then there was a little classified ad that caught your eye. And then you went and risked everything, which is not necessarily very sort of um, materially sciencey, is it? <laughs> Tell me the well, story. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. I mean, it really was as, it was as sort of ridiculous as you say. The serendipity of it was, was pretty extraordinary. I'd gone for lunch in hall in college and uh it was fairly late and i was supposed to meet a good friend of mine who's still a good friend and um he bumped me off for something i can't remember what and so i had lunch on my own and the undergrads had nicked all the papers <laughs> apart from the ft and i had a bit of work that i had a project that i needed to do for part of my, my master's and so i was just flicking through the paper looking for ideas. And I got to the businesses for sale section, which I'd never, I didn't even know it existed. I'd never read it before in my life. I don't really ever remember seeing it before, but it, it caught my eye for some reason. And I was looking through these literally classified ads for businesses for sale. <laughs> and there, sort of postage stamp sized, was this note that said, you know, for sale, tailor to king's emperors and presidents or something along those lines please write to mr mr n granger at 16 savile row i thought this is this is that really a savile row tailors that can't possibly be right you know they don't sell savile row tailors in the back of the paper <laughs> but they did and and i i wrote him a letter which was i mean it was only it was only 18 years ago but they were still it was still very much the kind of they were writing with quill pens in savile row so i and I, and I went to see them and and i thought i mean this i mean it really was one of the oldest tailors in the world and it had fallen upon hard times for various different reasons and the family that owned it were looking to to get out before it failed Perhaps. completely and how did you raise the money this is a, so you're there well, eating your cheese sandwich being yeah. stood up you yeah. then decide what I'm going to now do is I'm just going to um yeah buy a tailor's well you know a sort of penny drops I was like oh I used to like I'd that. loved clothes all my life yes. you know there were th there were certain things I had always loved I'd always loved I'd always loved clothes I'd always loved beautiful clothes I'd always loved tailored menswear I'd always loved old historic brands yeah and I'd always loved handmade beautiful things so you know you do the Venn diagram of that and Pong right in the middle is is Savile Row. And I thought, well, this is probably something that piques my interest on, on every single level. And and here I was, having done two-thirds of a, a master's degree in business, and all of my sort of cohort were about to bugger off and earn a million pounds a day being <laughs> private equity slash hedge funders or management consultants at McKinsey and Bain. And I thought, look, I'm going to buy this knackered old tailors. But it never crossed my mind that it wouldn't work because I guess if, yep. you know, I, I imagine you are the same, you know, you didn't get into not in the high street thinking this isn't going to be a roaring success. You, you know, I think if you have that in your mind, you cannot but and it's interesting, people talk about creativity mostly with, with regards to, to kind of art and sculpture and pottery and craft and all of these things. But, you know, I think there are entrepreneurs imagine businesses that don't exist. And, you know, I could clearly see in my mind and have done it at every other turn, you know, with community clothing. I, I can see exactly what it can be and it can become. And, I, you know, it is very clear in my mind. It's just then a question of getting to it. Yeah. And... You know, I think that is what 
sets entrepreneurs apart. They imagine something that doesn't exist and they make it happen. And, and I imagined Norton and Sons as a thriving thing. I mean, obviously Norton's already existed. I could see various ways that, you know, just loads of simple things that I could do. There was almost nothing they were doing that I didn't think with a application of a bit of hard work and some better, slightly better thinking, I could just improve. You know, there were 10 dozen things that could be done better. And that was that was kind of interesting. But you sold your house, you sold your I car, did. you sold everything, yeah. you borrowed yeah. from the bank, you raised money yeah. with friends. And so you knew, knew it. I mean, this is the, I think what you're saying is so true. When I interview people here on this podcast, there isn't, and, you know, I'm obsessed with Arnie at the moment, you know, as he said, would you mean plan B? There's only plan A. That's it. Yeah. And uh, I totally yeah. agree. I'm having a massive light made for my house. It's just going to say plan A. Because that's it, isn't it? It's like, what do you mean not well, you to don't work? Ever believe, you, you believe it's going to work. And I think there's something actually, the, there is a strong feeling of optimism. I don't know. Again, it's, I think it is part of our national psyche somehow, because we are more entrepreneurial than a lot of other places on earth. There is a strong entrepreneurial uh, verve here and I don't know where it comes from but I think a lot of people you know, I meet lots and lots of people who start businesses all the time and there's a you know it's morally and socially acceptable to do it and there's no you know also I think we don't mind we know that these things fail but I didn't think it would fail but also I didn't really worry I've never been particularly materialistic I mean, what was the worst that was going to happen? I was going to lose the money that I'd made on buying a, you know, I bought my first house when I was a student for 30 grand and, yep. you know, it made a bit of money and I bought a different one and that made a little bit of money and, you know, but if I lost it, so what? Um, yeah. You know, I knew I just, you know, I just finished a master's degree from Oxford. I knew I could probably get a decent job if I needed to. Yeah. Life wasn't going to be over. Yeah. What a great attitude at quite a young yeah. age to have. You had no formal training though in fashion. This is the this is the gumption, isn't it? In in well, people. Well, also, but Norton and Sons wasn't really fashion. I mean, no, it wasn't. Exactly. It wasn't like I was yes. designing collections of clothes at that time. I was just running a small business that happened, you know, but I knew a lot about clothes. I mean, I'd been informally studying yes. men's clothes, clothes for school. probably 25 years at that point in time. Yeah. Since, when, since I was really small, I'd always had a, a strong view on it. So I'd read thousands of books about men's fashion and I'd read biographies of thousands of designers. I just had, hadn't done it thinking it was ever, ever going to be going part to be of you. my professional career. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it's usually around this time of year that what I call overwhelm week kicks in. Suddenly, the Christmas ads are everywhere. My to-do list seems to have quadrupled and I get that absolute fear about getting everything done in time without completely losing it. Sound familiar? Well, this year is different because I'm here to help and at the same time, bring the joy back to Christmas. I have launched my small business marketplace and have scoured the UK to bring the most unique, thoughtful gifts and beautifully made decorations all together in one place. It means we can do all the parts of Christmas we enjoy, like making sure our loved ones know just how much they mean to us and doing all the fun and creative bits, but without the giant headache. And the best part, everything on our site is handmade by an independent small business. So as well as shopping joyfully again, you'll be bringing happiness to lots of hardworking founders, 
90% of whom are female, by the way, and giving them a Merry Christmas too. Visit holly.co for many ideas this Christmas. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. So what was it like when you were living in the workshop? You were working six days a week um, for the first six years. It's tough, isn't it, being your own boss? And, you know, certainly if you're re sort of bringing something back to life as well, you're trying to maybe undo things, maybe that's always been done a certain way. Tell me about those early days and what were those first things? Think about who's listening, those who are running a business maybe right now or, you know, what was your instinct when you came in? Did you just sort of know what needs to be done? I did. I mean, I, I obviously I'd, I'd written a plan and actually, you know, part of doing my MBA allowed me access to all sorts of people and information that, you know, was, was relatively privileged. I mean, I managed to skew all of the latter work that I had to do for the sort of final third of my, my master's into into projects that worked around this idea of restoring old brands and businesses. And and so I had, you know, I got to speak to loads of amazing yeah. people who'd already done it. Clever move, by the way. Good move, that was. The plan was very simple. You know, it was just go back to doing fewer things and do them as well as they possibly could be done. I think the, the previous owners had... Because they'd experienced various different difficulties, they'd, they'd started to diversify into lots of things that were, frankly, increasingly marginal and irrelevant to the core of what the business was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were selling shotguns and and, yeah. and sporting tours, sporting in inverted commas. And they were, you know, they were increasingly doing things that were taking away from this idea that, you know, Savile Row's there to make beautiful handmade clothes and so I just went back to doing that and just try to hire better people and you know we we also celebrated the smallness of the business which the previous owners had been very reluctant to to ever talk about yes. but I love the fact that we only made a couple of hundred suits a year I thought that was a positive thing not a negative thing and we also we did things like going to a policy of only sourcing uh, local materials uh, mm-hmm. so we where we could we only use British so effectively all of the woolen textiles that we used at Norton's were, were UK made. And where we couldn't find stuff, cotton textiles and some linens and things that weren't made in the UK at that time, we bought them from as close yes. as we could, but, you know, from the best people we could, so which was which was Italy. But, you know, we set about, or I set about, I always say we, but it's not the, often it isn't really a we. I mean, obviously there were other people there, but <laughs> you end up doing you know, a lot of it. But um, that was it. It was like, just just go back to doing what everybody expects mm-hmm. that sort of business to be about, which is making the very best handmade clothes and and don't do anything else and, and focus obsessively on doing that as well as you possibly can. And that was the entire plan. But I think the first year, in fact, I, I worked out that in the first three years, the average I paid myself was £7,000 a year. And one of my slides for one of the talks I used to do to universities about entrepreneurialism and that sort of thing, setting up your own small business, was was a picture of a tin of beans. And it was like, <laughs> that's that's kind of what I lived on. I worked out, I used to have a one pound a day lunch budget. And on yeah. Fridays, I would treat myself if things had been going well to an extra couple of quid. But, you know, I worked out the local supermarket just around on Barclay Square. That was it pound a day for lunch and because actually the great thing about running your own business is if it's not a passion you're probably doing the wrong thing you know most people love what they're doing and 
because of that, you don't need much else. Yeah, I think there's something very, very beautiful about that embryonic stages when building a brand, almost if you have to strip things back or you certainly at the moment, I'm obsessively talking about standing on the balcony and being able to look down at your business rather than on the dance floor or on the workshop floor and being able to actually see what it needed. And in a way, you're fresh air eyes came in and you could you could see things more clearly whereas the previous owners potentially were on the workshop floor buying yeah. shotguns and yeah you is they can't see the wood for the trees yeah thing. you just literally can't and i think that there's such a, a beauty though that if you can stand on the balcony you can eat the baked beans you can then understand each hair on it on the business's head what it stands you is is in great stead for the future, to weather storms, to be able to know exactly the heartbeat of the company, the way the blood flows, how, you know, and so often we don't, you know, we entrepreneurs, those who start businesses do, but actually when you look at larger businesses, that's what they're missing. They don't know actually the mechanics and how this whole thing from a sort of an emotional point of view, as much as a practical point of view comes together. Tell me, you went on not only in reinventing that business, tell me about the other 150-year-old heritage brand that yeah. once dressed Winston Churchill, amongst others, yeah. um, that you bought. He was a big fan. Well, we didn't buy it. I mean, I, when I bought Norton's, it had these sort of sleeping dormant ah. brands sitting Underneath in the cupboard. It. Yeah. Really? I mean, many of the Savile Row tailors, I mean, Savile Row a century ago was, was probably 200 odd tailoring firms. And then between the outcomes of two world wars and a dramatic change in the way we've lived and viewed our clothes and all sorts of different things, many of those businesses, which were either military tailors or sporting tailors, ran out of steam. And uh, Norton's had been a, a civilian tailor. And Norton's, I think we, we got two bits of really, really good luck. And I think, again, I think anybody starting a business, you can work as hard as harder than anybody on earth, but you do sometimes need a bit of good fortune. And you, you need to also accept that good fortune as part of the process and not feel bad about it. We got two bits of fantastic good luck. The first was that the BBC, that wonderful organisation, decided about six months after I took over at Norton's to do a full deep dive, three one-hour documentary series about Savile Row. Wow. And the guy who made that, he came and he filmed lots and lots and lots of stuff on Savile Row and he got fantastic access that nobody had ever been granted before because finally I think the tailors of Savile Row realised that... They need to know, let people in. In the modern world, they need to <laughs> let people in a little bit. But Ian came with me to the Isle of Harris in the in what became the first episode. And this all this amazing stuff happened in Harris while we were there. And the day after the first episode aired, the door at Norton's had never, you know, seen so much action. I mean, literally, I think we got four new customers the day after this documentary went on air. And it transformed our business. I mean, we we came out of it fantastically well because you know, we were doing good stuff yeah. and we were a small business that was trying to do everything in exactly the right way and it resonated with people. So we got this extraordinary coverage oh from this goodness. thing and it was it was such a, I mean, the following year our business 
almost doubled and then kept on growing and it was great. So I love these moments. I think it was Wilfred who spoke about from the, uh, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, the black farmer, he spoke about guardian angels and that actually we as entrepreneurs and business owners can, can almost cite these moments where a guardian angel, someone just comes into your life and it can change absolutely everything. And and many people have cited these moments. But it's almost like I'm now listening to yours. It's not necessarily just a person. It's it's just these guardian angelic moments, aren't they? You can't plan it. Mm. But you you make them happen. Oh, of course, yes. There were a dozen tailors on Savile Row, all of whom met Ian and spoke to Ian. And we just happened to... Think that's a good thing. There was just a good thing going on there. <laughs> yeah. There was some yes, chemistry. Yes, you make your own luck, they, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, these things happen, but how you choose to react yes, to them. you're right. You know, lots of opportunities come your way. And I'm the sort of person, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs are that sort of person, that you are prepared to go with something, even though you have no idea how it might work out. You're right. And if you don't take those opportunities, then this this stuff will not happen to you. Yeah. But I mean, there was a second bit that was almost as almost as good. So it was a, a one of my really dear friends, an old school friend who had invested in Norton's. He was a senior, senior ad guy in London. And Channel 4 commissioned him to make a documentary about what it was called the search for cool. And it was it was it was an exploration of what makes something cool. You know, when does something become cool? Yep. Who decides that it's cool? Who decides that it's then not cool? And he met lots of cool makers, for want of a better expression. And one of those people was a young designer called Kim Jones. And he had recently completed his degree at St. Martin's. He was running his own fashion brand under his own name. And Martin met Kim for the show and said, look, oh, you should meet my friend Patrick, who's running Norton and Sons. I think you'd like Norton's. It's this cool old tailor. Anyway, so Kim came to Norton's and, you know, loved it. Looked around the workshop, went through the archive, looked at all the fabric books and just was, you know, sort of slightly in awe of this amazing talent that our tailors had. And he said, oh, I'll be in touch. This is amazing, but I'll be in, I'll be in touch. And six months later, he was in touch. And he said, look, we've, we've got these clothes that we want to make for this collection. And we can't work out even how to cut the patterns, let alone make the garments. Do you have time to do it? And and I sort of, well, let me just go and check, Kim. And, <laughs> you know, rustled, pretended to be rustling around in the background, you know, as the tumbleweed was blowing through the workshop. And I came, oh, yeah, yeah, I think we can just about fit it in. So we made these amazing pieces. I think we made seven or eight, maybe even nine pieces for his catwalk show, which was in happening in New York that season. And through Kim... He was so generous with his kind of publicity yes. of the fact that we had done all of this stuff. So, And he was great friends with Alexander McQueen, Lee McQueen. So he brought Lee to us and he became a customer. And then from Lee, we started working with Christopher Kane and then Erdem became a customer. And then Henry Holland worked with us and then loads and loads. Like all of a sudden we became... Cool. I mean, Christian Louboutin became a customer. I mean, all these kind of superheroes from the world of British design came to us as customers and we made stuff for their catwalk collections and we worked with we worked with Rag and Bone in New York, we worked with the Couples, we did all this stuff. We became this the tailor that the kind of cool young designers from yeah. London went to, which was sort of good. You know, you can wow. be known for all sorts of things. There's the oldest one, there's the most expensive one, there's the one with the most <laughs> royals. And we were the one that had all the designers and that was that was pretty good. 
So I'm reflecting what I said about guardian angels coming into our lives. And I really actually think that you've sort of progressed that thought because I totally agree. It's what you do with that guardian angel moment or person, isn't it? And as you just said, those are the things that you you did. You were presented with these opportunities. And because you believed so much, you were just able to run with it. Whereas other people literally just, it all shuts down at that point in time. Each week, I'm joined by our wonderful partners at Dell Technologies. They're passionate supporters of small businesses right across the UK. Through free resources and networks like Dwen, Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network, championing female founders and helping them thrive. For more than a decade, Dwen has brought female entrepreneurs from around the world together to help them connect, scale their businesses and ultimately succeed. The Dwen community welcomes founders at all stages, from startup to scale-up. Joining Dwen gives you access to female entrepreneurs globally and valuable resources to grow your business, including the latest Dell technology, access to funding resources and best practices. To find out more about Dwen and how to sign up, head to dwen.com. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Tell me, what do you think the future is with online, you know, sort of cited as sort of one world, and then you've obviously got your world. Do you think that these things combine? Do you think that this is going to be, is there, as we become more and more digitally focused, do you think there's going to be a sort of, you know, as, you know, Kindles, we just all thought that books were going to be burnt and destroyed and never going to play. You know, do you think that that actually we're going to see a resurgence in actually preserving craft or understanding what it is? I think we will. I think I think for various reasons. I think you know there are many many fantastic things about the digital world. We we have so much at our disposal now that we could never have imagined having. Some of the things that we have today are like the things that we saw on Star Trek and we <laughs> didn't believe. You know the communicator. You know we can talk yes. to anyone in the world like we're doing now. We yes. can see each other. We can talk to one another all over the planet. We can become so connected to one another digitally that it allows us. You know we can talk to our family and friends for free for the whole. You know we can. That's wonderful. We can listen to literally any song ever made in history at the tap of a button. We can watch infinite television and film. We've got endless opportunities for entertainment. We can find all the world's information, at the, again, at our fingertips. I mean, I'm, Wikipedia are looking for money. Please, everybody donate a couple of quid. But, you know, all of this stuff is amazing. But it disconnects us from from the natural world. And I think that is becoming a very large source of unhappiness for people. When we had nothing, which really we had until quite recently, you know, 500 years ago, most people had nothing. They had the clothes on their back and a wooden bowl and a wooden spoon and a three-legged wooden stool, if they were lucky, and a temporary shelter made out of sticks and mud. That's what most people had. But they were connected. They had jobs that were real, They Mm -hmm. had jobs where they went out and they did something physical and they were literally connected to the land because they were ploughing it and were deeply connected to everything in their life and very, very connected also to the people in their communities. And whilst they had bugger all, there was a realness and a deep connection that actually I think gave people an amount of happiness that they probably didn't realise they had at that moment in time. And now 
we don't do any of that. Most people mm. have no connection. I mean, it's funny. There are many, many people that just have no connection to nature at all and don't have any connection to how things are made and what things are made from. And it leaves us feeling very empty. And the, almost the more stuff we have, the less happy we are about it. And now, you know, the fashion industry has become something where, you know, from 50 years ago where it was, you know, a couple of brands doing a collection every six months. We now have a situation where we have, you know, the worst of the fast fashion brands release 3,000 new products every day. You mm. know, Shein releases 3,000 new products every single day. Is that a fact? That's real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, there was a report done last year. They studied the main fast fashion businesses and they recorded the number of, the business of fashion did it. They studied the number of new releases they were doing. And everybody thought Boohoo and H&M and Zara yeah. and ASOS were bad for driving consumption. Yeah, she in mental. Absolutely. I mean, it's <laughs> in, insanity. I mean, it's it insanity. should be illegal. Well, it's, uh, there is a feeling that a lot of it isn't even real. Again, you know, a lot of this stuff is created purely by AI. A good friend of mine who did work at ASOS uh, you know, obviously ASOS, it's destroyed ASOS. It's destroying mm -hmm. all these other brands. I mm -hmm. mean, these brands that were destroying other people, this is the thing. We used to have clothing businesses, Marks and Spencers, for example, you know, lasted a hundred years, still has value today. Then things started, the, the cycle of this just gets faster and faster. And five years ago, ASOS was worth nine billion pounds or dollars. I can't remember which. A couple of years ago, it was worth seven billion. And today it's worth 450 million. Now, that's extraordinary that a business can rise up, be worth so much and then worth so little in such a short period of time. Shows you how fragile mm. this cycle is making businesses. Because if your business is based on selling more stuff and selling it cheaper than somebody else, somebody else will come along and, and do it you. cheaper and more and, and eat you. And this is exactly what's happened. There is no lasting value in those businesses because they're you know, if you're trying to convince people that new newness needs to happen on a daily basis, that will translate to business as well as product. And your business will become old just as quickly as your fashionable clothes will become old. Gosh, it's just, in, that's actually insanity. Tell me though, because your vision is very, very different. And the power of business, as you know, can be incredibly negative on our planet, on our society, on other businesses, actually, and the longevity of brands. But I think something that we both share as values is that it can also radiate positivity towards individuals, towards communities. You can be the opposite to Xi'an. You can be the opposite to ASOS. In 2015, you ran a crowdfunding initiative to save Britain's textile factories from closure. And community clothing was born. Can you just tell me what is the mission behind this and how that came about in your life? Well, the mission is very straightforward. It does two things. It sells really good quality, long-lasting clothes that are made out of good stuff and are made in factories here in the UK. And by doing that, what we do is we sustain and create skilled jobs here. And it sounds like a very simple thing to do, but at the time, nobody else was doing it. And I think mm. still nobody else is doing it. But the idea was to make those clothes affordable. I looked at the problems that many of the factories that I was using, both the Norton & Sons and e Torts, 
were facing. And in 2015, a factory called Cookson and Clegg in Blackburn, who were one of our main suppliers, was closed or it was going to be closed. I got an email on a Sunday night from the MD and he said, look, we're shutting the business. We can't keep it going. We're, we're going to honour all of our current orders, but after that, it's shutting. So two months from now, it's gone. And I thought, look, this is this is too much. You know, having seen textile businesses close over and over and mm. over again, this was one I knew really well. I knew the people well and the product was incredible. And, they, you know, they've been in Blackburn since 1860. And I thought this is too much. So I, I took it over. And I was lucky that at the time... I had a business at Debenhams that was was doing really, really well. And I had enough money to support the losses for mm-hmm. years because they were substantial. <laughs> <laughs> and it got me thinking about what all of these businesses have in common and, and the problems they have in common. So the idea was, can we do it? Can we do this inexpensively? Can we Can we establish a business model that allows us to sell really brilliant quality stuff. And the factories we work with make for some amazing brands, you know, the most famous luxury brands on the planet. I walk through, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to name these things, but, you know, I'm looking at the most luxury brands on the planet going through the factories we work with. They make amazing stuff. But can we do that? Can we sell that quality of clothing for a price that is sort of about the same as Debenhams, John Lewis, yep. that kind of, you know, because that means most people can then afford to buy it, which means that the amount of work that we give to those factories becomes significant. You know, we're not going to, there are lots of great brands making British products and selling them at prices that only very rich people can afford. Mm. That is not our principle. Our principle is if we do it at an affordable price, then a lot of people, not the least well off, sadly, but, you know, because... Mm -hmm. There is just a cost Cost that they cannot bear. But, you know, for a lot of people, they can do it. And by doing that... We create thousands and thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands of hours of work for the factories that we work with. And we now work with 42 factories across the UK, 1,880 staff. We've created, I actually, we, we, I haven't done it. We haven't done a total for a while, but, you know, we count the number of hours of work that we create. But we did it by stripping all the usual cost out of running a business. You know, in the, in the standard fashion industry, if you pay a quid... 20 to 25p of that goes to the people that make it. The grower, the spinner, the weaver, the cutter and the sewer, they get 20 to 25p. If it's designer fashion, typically they get about 10p. And the brand takes about 60 odd p and then there's a bit of that, obviously. In our model, we flip that. So in our model, obviously the taxman gets his bit, the vat, but the makers get 65p in every pound Mm. and we take what's left which is not very much we do that by not designing new collections every six months certainly not designing collections every flipping day like some people but we design a product with the intention that it's going to be on sale for 20 years at least we make using the same factories year after year so we don't have any uh, sourcing costs we use the same entire supply chain from growers to spinners to weavers to finishers dyers uh, and makers, we spend almost nothing on marketing. You know, we don't mm. pay influencers. We 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 do a bit of digital marketing. We don't shoot expensive campaigns. I mean, we just did this huge, amazing campaign to kind of restart underwear making in Wales, and the whole thing <laughs> kind 
cost us about five grand, including everybody. I mean, the entire, like the video production, the stills, the models, the people, the content, everything. We just pull favours. Can I ask you something on that, though? This is something that I find so thrilling for you to be outing this. We're right now, you know, people listening, you know, they're starting businesses, creating businesses, or they're just entrepreneurial in thinking. And there's this sort of uh, notion that comes with all of this, that the more digital that we become, the more that we've got to be, you know, putting in costs, spending, spending on Meta, spending on Facebook, spending on Google, spending on this. You've got to be, you know, so digitally savvy. It actually puts a lot of people off from doing what they love. Right. So from what your concept is absolutely beautiful. I love what you're saying. And it's something at Holly and Code that we agree with. Um, we haven't worked it out yet, but we're going to say something like no advertising campaign that we create or whatever will cost over a thousand pounds ever. And actually, by setting those parameters, it makes us highly creative. By setting those sort of things, it means that, no, you can't just go and buy an influencer and just get a ton of people in who will see you once, never come back, weren't your people in the in the first place. But what you can do is by saying, well, we'll only spend £1,000. It means that actually you've got to go to the core of who you want to attract. And thus the creativity will be top notch. And, and I love this idea that you, there you are, doing something so wholesome and brilliant and it's £5,000 that you're spending on it. Not fifty, not 500000 but actually those that engage with what you're doing will be your loyal fans. They'll start telling yeah. people about it. Well, ultimately, we're very lucky. We built a business from the ground up that was about doing what we set out to do. So it's make good stuff, sell it at a good price and by doing that, create loads of jobs. Mm. So at our heart, there is nothing that we do that most people don't like the sound of. Oh, I'm getting good quality clothes for way less than I would pay somewhere else. Or by buying these clothes, I'm putting money into the pockets of people in the UK who are skilled workers that I care about. You know, 90p in every pound you spend with us goes straight back into the UK economy. Loads of people love that. Like we write all of this stuff down. So our adverts say things like, you know, and our efforts are literally just, I just write them on in Garamond in a square and put it on Instagram. And it's, um, and it says things like, you know, you know, you won't find socks this good for even twice the price, which is totally true because we know that actually the people that make our socks also make them for loads of other brands who, who charge in fact more like three and sometimes three and a half times for exactly the same stuff. So, you know, Yes. At its heart, if your business doesn't have a message that resonates with people, you can spend all the money in the world and no one will give a shit. No one will connect. If you have a business model that people are into, if you have product that they're into or a business ideal that they're into, they will love it no matter how little you spend. And I think that is the fundamental mistake lots of people make. You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. I mean, Mm. even if you've got Kardashians and Jenners, people see (laughs) through this stuff. Yes. And, you know, when you think about building something, I think I'm building a business with community clothing that has an absolutely long term future. You know, if we get it right, I cannot see any reason why 100 years from now people will not still want to buy really good quality clothes that are made out of great materials that don't harm the planet, where everybody that makes them get really well paid 
And all of that money flows into communities that people actually care about, including their own communities where their friends and relatives and other people work. So long term, this is about creating value for everybody. And you talked earlier about the power of business to do good. When I first went to Oxford, the Skoll Foundation had recently been set up and there was the Skoll School for Social Enterprise. And in 2003, when I was, you know, when I started my master's, it was a huge deal. Social enterprise was one of the most talked about things in the world of business. And its premise was simple. Businesses Mm -hmm. should be there for the benefit, not just of the financial shareholders, but also for all of the constituents involved. You know, it should work for the people that work for the business. It should work for those customers. It should work for the planet and it should work for shareholders. And that idea was something that gained massive currency at that point in time. But 2007 financial crisis, it all went away. It was like everybody panicked and thought, oh, shit, we're going to have to go straight back to just making as much profit as we can in the same old way we always did. And that was a horrendous, terrible mistake. You know, there have been periods in time where we have looked at the industrial capital system and thought, this is a bad idea. It's start- 1970s. There was, a, there was a moment in time, there were a couple of books published. There was one called The Limits to Growth and another called Small is Beautiful by a guy called Fritz yes. Schumacher. And all of a sudden the world is looking at things differently. And then there was a massive oil crisis and it all gets wiped away. And, and there is this panic amongst the kind of capital owners that they're not going to be making as much money anymore and it's back to business as usual and that happened after the 2007 financial crisis all that social enterprise great thinking kind of got washed away and now we need to get back to it and do you think that it's happening now i don't know it's hard it's hard to to, to gauge from my small kind of vantage point but it feels like people are more concerned about not just about the planet but about the work that people do you know what what are we doing with our lives and what are we going to be doing with our lives in the next 20 30 40 years you know when when ai wipes out a bunch of jobs already people are astonishingly pissed off you know we look at what has happened economically over the last 50 odd years you know there are things that will bring down the system you know there are mm-hmm. lots of things so the limits to growth was all about you know there is a limit to the expansion of the human race and the human industrial activity and it's coming and we're going to hit it at some point. And they reckoned it was 100 years from 1973. So 2073. Yeah, we're already looking at the total destruction of topsoil so that we can no longer grow any food in something like 40 years from now. So there's all sorts of this stuff is happening. But I think we are once again sort of questioning this stuff. And I think we're looking for meaning. You know, as mm-hmm. human beings, we're, we are looking for meaning. You know, un- unhappiness is rising. I think the interesting thing about the way we record the success of our economy is by a number called GDP or GNP. We don't record anything in terms of actual human outcomes. Like, is all of this economic activity making us happier? Is it making us better off, more comfortable Healthier. Healthier. You know, there are certain things that will bring down societies. Lots of societies have failed in the past. And we are at a point where it feels like people are becoming increasingly unhappy with the outcomes of the the broad economic system. Mm -hmm. And partly amplified, I think, by the availability of information about what other people feel via, via social media. But we are in a situation now where 
most people are, are significantly worse off now than they were 50 years ago. People are deeply pissed off with the system. The system we have right now is not working for 90% of people. Yes. It only works really for 10% of people. And for 1%, it works fantastically well. But why the hell are 90% of us putting up with this? You know, Shouldn't we be asking for something different, something that is more human in scale, where individual human outcomes are what we seek to do? You know, the outcome for 90% of us should be the goal, not the, the outcome for 10%. 10%. And that's what you're doing? That is what we're trying to do and lots of people are trying to do. I mean, the whole point of social enterprises is it is about creating value for far more people, not just that 10%. Yeah. And our business is about creating opportunity for people growing up in our textile regions. Our textile regions are about the most economically, socially deprived, you know, because that's where most of the jobs went. You know, yeah. we used to employ two and a half million people in the UK making textiles and clothing. 20% of all jobs were in textiles and clothing. Incredible. Now, the number is about 100,000 people out of a total workforce of I don't know quite what, but 30 odd million. So it's nothing. And they've all, they've all gone in places like Blackburn and Burnley and Manchester and Liverpool and lots of towns across Yorkshire, Leeds, Pudsey, Halifax. I mean, all across Yorkshire and Lancashire, all across the Midlands, southern Scotland. These places have been absolutely ripped apart by the loss of industry and nothing has stepped in to replace those jobs. And so people in those towns feel like there is very little future for them. And that's why we had Brexit, because people feel hopeless and they want to shake the system up and have something new. And I think if we went back to a system where every business was concerned with the outcome of every citizen, life would be much, much better for people. Absolutely. And this is where people like yourself, I'm very, very happy, are building businesses and not only just settling, but building new businesses and reimagining. Is that why becoming a judge on the Great British Sewing Bee was important? Raising awareness, raising awareness for textiles, raising awareness for how we should care for things, raising awareness for, for tradition, all of these sorts of things. Because I, I can imagine that's not when you were eating your cheese sandwich, looking at the classified ad, you were thinking, I know what's going to happen. I'm one day going to be on the TV. I mean, I'd love to say that, you know, all of those <laughs> thoughts went through my head. But initially, what I thought was, that'll be a load of fun. And also, that will... Ray, it, I mean, Raise I, awareness, uh, yes, there yes. were two things. I mean, I thought in my industry relies on young people wanting yes. to get into careers where they make things for a living, you know, not just in textiles, in clothing, in knitwear. But I mean, I would love to see a return of manufacturing in this country on a very Agreed. grand scale. And I think it would do an enormous amount of good. You know, we could buy fewer things that are more expensive but better, will last longer and we will enjoy owning them and using them much more. And, and if we can do that in a way where things are produced locally, we have this beautiful kind of virtuous circle where we not only do fantastic for the planet because we're using less stuff and using less energy and throwing a lot less away, but also the money that we spend goes straight back into our local economy, uh, creating opportunities for lots of people. So I for sure thought... 
if we do a successful show about sewing, people might want to get into sewing for a living. And that would be great for us because at the moment, the clothing and textile industries, like lots of manufacturing industries, really struggling to find young people who want to do it. Absolutely. So A, I thought it was a load of fun. I mean, who doesn't want to go and hang out with Claudia Winkleman for <laughs> weeks and weeks on end? But also, I did think... You know, people will watch this and think making stuff is good, yeah. just as they had when I, when we did the Savile Row documentary. All of a sudden, the number of young people wanting to apprentice as tailors on Savile Row shot up 500%. And yeah, I hope the same thing would happen. And it has. And it has. Well, also, people have just started making stuff at home again. And yeah. If nothing else, it's a bit like with our food. Again, when I went to school, we made stuff at school. So we learned how things felt. We learned what good quality felt like. We had good tools to make things with in woodwork. We had high quality materials that we worked with. Everybody left school knowing what something good felt like. Now nobody knows what anything good feels like because we just, for some poor people, they only ever wear really terrible quality clothes. They don't know how good these things should feel, how warm they feel, how comfortable they feel, how nice they feel to touch on the skin. You know, if you've grown up only wearing, you know, Mm. low quality synthetic clothing, you have no idea. So by learning to sew, not only are you doing something that's fun, but you are developing an innate understanding of how quality things should be constructed, but also what these materials feel like. I remember Joe about some way through the second series we were filming, asking me what polyester was. And I thought, it's a very valid question because if nobody has ever explained to you what acrylic, nylon, polyester, polyurethane, yeah. elastane, if nobody's ever explained to you that these are oil-based synthetic materials, you're not going to know. When you look in that label and you look at that vegan leather bag and it says 100% polyurethane, you don't know that that is an evil, chemically produced thing that never biodegrades and, you know, screws the planet. You think vegan leather, that sounds great. And, you Mm. know, bamboo silk. I mean, that's another one that gets on my, you know, whatever. You know, that is a viscose. It's a synthetically produced viscose material that just happens to use bamboo, which it mulches up into a chemical slurry before it extrudes a fibre from it. It's synthetic chemistry. But, you know, if you don't know this stuff, you can't make informed choices. No. Just like you can't make a good choice about the things you eat, eat. if you don't yep. know you don't about where food yep. comes from and what it's done. If you don't learn it at school, you can't, you can't live a healthy life. You can't make smart decisions about the things you buy, whether it's clothing or anything, if you've got no inherent understanding of what quality is. And I think that's one of the things that making clothes has done. It's made people think about the quality of the stuff they wear. If you run a small business, the Christmas season is well and truly upon you. And I know for so many of you listening right now, you'll be making, creating and packing up your items to send to their new homes as I speak. Royal Mail will be doing all they can to ensure your items arrive safely to their recipients through their network of brilliant posties. We have just a few weeks to go before the Christmas season comes to a close, so it's crucial you're aware of the all-important latest recommended posting dates. You'll find lots of useful advice and information by following at Royal Mail Business on Instagram or visiting the small business hub on royalmail.com. Now back to our conversation of inspiration. Tell me, we're coming to the end of this interview. You are, did you say 50? 
51. 51. You can tell by the greyness of my tash. I can't, actually. You're 51. You're full of beans. It feels like you're just beginning, right? Your enthusiasm for this. Yeah. Are you just going to keep on going? Have you got high ambitions to make proper change? Yes, absolutely. I think what I'm doing now has the opportunity to sustain my interest for a long period of time. Yeah. There are so many things that we can do that will make things better in all sorts of different ways. And there are lots and lots of interesting projects. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. I get to opportunities to do loads and loads of great things. But the idea behind community clothing, you know, I look into the future and I see a modern shiny textile and clothing industry that looks a bit like the Google campus where, you know, you've got spinning sheds and things over here and they're all shiny glass buildings. There's great big lakes and then there's, you know, there's the academies where the apprentices are trained and, you know, there's the creches where everybody's kids looked at, get looked after so that everybody can come to work and the whole ecosystem. And, you know, young people growing up in rural, you know, in towns in Lancashire and Yorkshire, have a future that they are mm. like, I cannot wait to go and work there because it's going to be um, brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, I can see that, but that's not going to happen in the next five or 10 years. You know, we've got a long, long way to go before we get there, but it can, we can get to that. We can get to that. And that's what excites me. I'm going to be recalling so many things that you've said on this interview many, many times whilst I build and I'm sure everybody builds their businesses or builds their dreams. At the end of this interview, I always ask my guest, if this has been a roller coaster, can you tell me what you would say has been your lowest low on that journey? Well, I don't know. I'm not the sort of person that really gets low. Not not low, low. Not like some people get low. You know, I know people that, that suffer terribly from, from anxiety and depression. I'm not one of those people and I'm very fortunate. But there have been times where I have thought, oh shit, this is going, this, this isn't is not going, going well. right. <laughs> I mean, there was a point in the first summer, I, I took over at Norton's in December and the following August, the door to the shop only opened once in the entire month. Mm. And I thought, oh, shit, we're just going to run out of money here. Yeah. And, you know, I'd called various customers and said, hello, you know, your suits are ready. <laughs> and they'd gone, oh, terrific. I'll see you in September sometime. And I thought, you might not, you know. Right. And I went to the bank and I sort of begged them for a little bit bigger overdraft and we managed to get through it. And somebody, you know, but my experience is something always happens that sorts things out. But also things do go wrong. You know, I have sadly mm. had to put businesses into liquidation. It is an awful, awful feeling, but I've always got them back. I've rehired the people that, that we had to make redundant. I've bought the machinery and back and things will start again. If, you know, I have a great belief in it. I have great belief in what I'm doing. And sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes you run out of cash for reasons that aren't of your making. I mean, COVID mm. annihilated us in lots of different ways. And, you know, but I think if you've got that spirit, you're going to get straight back on that horse and try and make it work. And the opposite with the most pucker suit that you could ever possibly wear sitting in your cart on that, on that roller coaster, what would you say has been one of your highest highs? I think there are a couple of really high highs. I mean, there've been some very, very funny moments. Things where I've sort of moments where I've pinched myself completely. I remember playing Trivial Pursuit with Kate Moss on holiday once thinking, I couldn't have imagined this 
20 years ago. Or I made a, you know, making a snowman with the Beckhams and, and like weird things like that. Or oh, I had dinner. The first time I had dinner with, with now King Charles, I sat opposite him at dinner and I thought, holy moly, this, is, this has been something, this, isn't it? Like I'm sitting here opposite Prince Charles and he's going to be king one day and now he is. And I was like... I'm like, I'm like a meter from our future monarch. So those have been, I mean, also I, I won Menswear Designer of the Year in 2010, which was extraordinary because I beat Paul Smith, who was like the first great suit I ever owned was a Paul Smith suit. And I beat, what's his name? Who was the designer at Burberry at the time. So I beat, um, I beat Burberry, Paul Smith and Margaret Howell. And Margaret oh Howell I love as well. So I'm like, oh my God, I've just like, I've just won this thing that three of like Burberry I'd loved as a brand for forever. Yes. Paul Smith was a hero and a yes. lovely man. And actually there was a moment we were in Paris once where we used to show our collections in Paris and we were, I, I cycle everywhere. And I was cycling over to our showroom in Paris and it was the day of Paul Smith's show in Paris. And I was cycling across the, the gigantic gravel forecourt at the Louvre and the IMP glass pyramid was in the background. And I see this cyclist coming towards me and we're, we're heading straight for one another in the opposite directions. I'm heading, I'm heading east, he's heading west or whichever way around it was. And um, I'm looking and I'm like, oh, it's Paul Smith. Anyway, so <laughs> we're cycling towards one another. And as we cross in front of the great glass pyramid, I sort of rang my bell and waved and he waved back and went, morning, and we passed. And I was like, I mean, these funny little moments that just make you smile. So yeah, there have been some brilliant, brilliant things that have happened to me as a result of taking that that leap. And, you know, I imagine I probably would have had a, a happy and fulfilling life if I'd carried on in engineering. But nothing like this, huh? I certainly wouldn't have been eating supper with Prince Charles. No. Oh, gosh. This has been such an, a wonderful, awe-inspiring moment to talk to you. I've enjoyed everything that you have said. As I said, I'm going to have to re-listen to so much because it has provoked much thought about craftswomanship, craftsmanship. It's provoked a lot of thought about business doing good and how we need to get far better at it. But it is that time in the podcast where I'm going to actually hand over to you, where I know that you prepared a letter to your younger self. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I put, I put hours into this. <laughs> Would you have listened to this letter? Well, when you hear it, you probably, yeah, yeah, I Maybe. probably would have done. Yeah, I'm going to hand over to you, but bless you for sharing so much of your story with us today. It might need some explaining, but I'm going to read it anyway. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Do not climb up every high thing you see, not the really big wall at Craig Lockett Sports Centre, nor the massive lime tree in the garden, and tell James not to also. Do not throw away those Vivian Westwood pirate trousers or those Jean-Paul Gaultier jacquard jeans. And don't buy those Miu Miu pie crust lace-ups. They are not the perfect shoe for jeans. Do not walk across fire ducts. Don't eat sea cucumber intestines or boiled chicken's feet. <laughs> Definitely do not eat from mountain snack bars in Nepal. Don't allow drunk doctors to sew up your limbs. Otherwise, crack on. Well, I can safely say we've never had a letter like that. I mean, th th drunk doctors sewing up limbs. Just tell me yeah. about that, please. Yeah, I was up up in the way far north of Scotland, and I and I split my knee open playing football in the garden with my friends. And the doctor turned up, and he was clearly worse for wear. I think he's left about half of 
half of Westeros in my knee and it got very, very badly infected and I ended up spending a week in hospital. <laughs> I've got a great big scar across my left kneecap as a result. My goodness. What a great letter. What a great letter. Thank you so much for your time today. I was a fan before. Now I'm a huge fan. I'm sure everyone listening will be exactly the same. And best of luck in changing your industry. And let's hope that maybe we're all going to be there clapping as you cut the ribbon to your textile Google campus in the future. I'll be one there cheering for you. Thank you so much. Been a pleasure. Thank you, Holly. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this episode, can I ask that you share it with a friend and like, subscribe and review it too, so that together we can inspire even more people to follow their dreams, to build a life they love. Mm -hmm.